Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. We also have a new co-host with us today, Dr. Geetha Steva Subramanian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me here. Welcome, Dr. Siva Supermanian. It is so awesome to have you here today. You know, Geetha wears many hats. She's an assistant clinical professor of medicine with UCSF. She's the interim chief in the Division of Infectious Disease at UCSF Fresno. And she's program director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship here at UCSF Fresno. So we're very honored to have her on the podcast. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do in your spare time? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Uh, well, my passion is infectious disease, so I'm really happy to come here and share my passion about the field. Um, I'm actually fairly new to Fresno. I just got here about three years back, right in the middle of COVID. So it's been an exciting journey these last three years here. The small amount of spare time that I do have, I spend with my family. I have two kids at home, and um, and I, I and I read and listen to infectious disease podcasts when I can. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> All right, let's jump into the topic. Um, Sajay, why don't you kick us off with the background? So today we'll be talking about infectious disease, and we'll be trying to target it towards the EMS provider. We also wanted to talk about emerging infections, and these emerging infections account for at least 12% of all human pathogens. These emerging diseases can be caused by newly identified microbes or new species or strains of viruses some evolve from a known pathogen, as occurs with new strains of influenza each year. Some result from the spread of existing disease to a new population in a different geographic region, um, such as with West Nile fever outbreaks. Some diseases can also emerge in areas undergoing ecological transformation, as in the case with Lyme disease. Others can experience a resurgence as a re-emerging infectious disease, like tuberculosis following drug resistance, or measles following decrease in vaccination rates. There are also nosocomial or hospital-acquired infections, such as MRSA or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, emerging in hospitals and are extremely problematic in that they are resistant to many antibiotics. So with all that background, let's jump into some questions for Geetha. She's the expert. And I know the world is really sick of COVID and doesn't want to talk about COVID, and COVID is like gone. But... Much focus has been on COVID the past three years. So I just want to know from you, or if you could share with us, what's your prediction on where COVID's headed? Thank you. It's a very different world with COVID right now than where we were three years ago with all the diagnostics, the vaccines, the therapeutics. We are definitely in a much better shape. WHO just ended the public health, global public health emergency as well. Having said that, we are still seeing COVID in that occasional patient. And the ones that we do see in the hospital are those who are not vaccinated or they have not been boosted or they have other immunocompromising conditions. So that's where COVID is going to head is we are still going to see those cases happen periodically here in patients who have uh, either have underlying medical conditions or or they have not been vaccinated. So even though it's reassuring, there are certain countries where there's still a large number of cases. So we've seen that this virus throws curveballs. So it is going to show variants come up. Um, so I think where we are headed in a nutshell would be vaccinate and be vigilant for variants. What is your prediction about vaccines? Is it going to be a once a year? Is it going to be in every six months? That's a great question. And I don't think we truly know the answer yet. 
FDA definitely made it simpler now that it's only the bivalent vaccine, vaccines that are recommended for everybody, which is great. Uh, we do know that the immunocompromised and ab above the age of 65 patients definitely need a booster. The question is, how long does that immunity last? Do we have enough data about that? It's not clear. Um, FDA is going to meet this June to assist the vaccine strains, assist the strains that are circulating to see what could. I know they are probably headed towards a direction of like a yearly influenza vaccine to make it simpler, but it's not clear whether it's going to be once a year or maybe even once in six months. I think we're still studying and we still need more data to show that. Do we have more data regarding the oral therapies for COVID? Um, I know initially the studies were very promising and very optimistic, and I just wanted to know if we have any more data from the real world. Yeah, I think uh, definitely in the real world setting too, Paxlovid has uh, shown quite a bit of promise. It reduces the symptoms, but it's definitely reducing the uh, need for hospitalization. Now, whether that's just from Paxlovid alone or it is because the strain has changed, the immunity level has changed, it's unclear. But definitely among the recent drugs, Paxlovid seems to have promise in at least reducing the symptoms and reducing hospitalizations for our patients. And just as a reminder, who are the people that should be getting Paxlovid? Anybody um, who has underlying medical conditions, uh, who are immunocompromised or older patients, who are at risk for developing a severe disease or they have underlying lung disease, COPD, these would be the patients that I would definitely recommend that they get started on Paxlovid. What's your thought on long COVID? It is real. It is definitely real. There was a, a large study of over 5,000 patients called the INSPIRE study that came out in CID. Um, they actually evaluated more than 5,000 patients in eight centers, prospectively compared patients with COVID and without COVID and assessed their symptoms over time. And so when we take a three-month mark, approximately one in eight patients with COVID had persistent fatigue and persistent symptoms. So it is fairly real. Having said that, what the study showed was pre-Delta variant patients had the highest risk of having severe fatigue, whereas the Delta and the Omicron variant patients, the prevalence of severe fatigue at three months was less. So long COVID symptoms, the most common prevalent ones are being fatigued, but people are also having some respiratory problems, cough, smell and, you know, perception issues as well. What we do notice is patients who have had the vaccine, the prevalence of COVID-19 long COVID symptoms are lesser. And that's also from the study findings. Is there, and I actually just, for myself, I don't know, is there anything anybody could do about long COVID symptoms? Uh, you know, there's actually lots of studies happening in many different areas. Even here at UCSF Fresno, we are looking at, you know, how is it affecting sleep? How is it affecting immunity? Are there other infections? How is it affecting bone density? How is it affecting, uh, you know, anxiety, depression? So there are multiple different aspects to long COVID that are being studied. The one thing I would say is, of course, prevention. So like I mentioned, vaccination does reduce the chance of getting long COVID, but uh, seeking care from specialists. If they are noticing that after COVID, their symptoms are not subsiding, maybe they need sleep studies done, maybe need, they need more uh, workup done. So I would definitely reach out to their doctor and get care from their specialist at that point. Now, stepping away from COVID for a moment, I feel like there's so much more to talk about in the world of infectious diseases. What do you feel is the most concerning infectious disease right now? 
It's very hard to, I think, come up with one infectious disease that would be a concern. I think uh, depending on the region, region to region, globally, the threat is different. So if you would go to developing countries, the, the problems that remain are tuberculosis, malaria, dengue, cholera, measles. So those are still a big problem in many of the developing countries. In the developed countries, because of travel, and because of vaccine hesitancy, we are seeing some of these global threats come back into our borders, which is a concern like measles or drug-resistance TB. Having said that, for the United States, my biggest concern would be drug-resistance pathogens and superbugs that are in our hospitals. I think that is the biggest threat to our patients right now. So when you're meaning superbugs, for those listening, so that's like your MRSA, um, what other superbugs I know a lot of folks are familiar with bugs like MRSA, but uh, really what we call as gram-negative, which is the opposite of the MRSA, those kind of bacteria which cause infections in our hospitalized patients. So we see a lot of what we call ESPLs, which means extended spectrum enzyme inhibitions. So lots of antibiotics will not work against these patients. We're seeing a lot of what's called a CRE or carbapenemase resistance enterobacteriaceae. For these bacteria, there's pretty much only one or two antibiotic left to treat them. And a lot of these antibiotics will not be in the pill form. It will be an intravenous antibiotic. So if a patient were to get a severe infection from one of these bacteria or fungi, they would have to be admitted to the hospital. And um, even, even with those intravenous antibiotics, the prognosis is poor for them. And the interesting part is some of these bacteria like ESPL, we are seeing them in our patients in the community, those who have not been hospitalized or those who have not come across healthcare or nursing home facilities. So those, I think, are a concern. And I don't think new drugs are being made at the rate at which we are seeing these bugs coming up. So there's definitely a lag in some of the new therapeutics that are available for these bugs as well. I was just going to say that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drug development happening in the world of antibiotics and antifungals. I was just recently reading about all the, the rise in resistant fungal infections. And would you mind speaking a little bit about those? Yeah, absolutely. So candida, for instance, our yeast infections, all of us have candida as part of our normal flora. It's part of our mouth. It's part of our gut. Uh, but sometimes instead of staying within our body, it kind of invades and causes actual infections. And those would happen in patients, again, who are immunocompromised, they've been in the ICU, they've been hospitalized, they have tubes or lines, they've been on antibiotics for a long time. So those are conditions where candida can outgrow and instead of staying as part of the normal flora, they overgrow and actually cause an infection. And um, these days we are seeing a particular species of candida called candida auris, uh, which is definitely an emerging threat because, again, a lot of the available antifungal agents do not work against this particular fungus. Uh, so there's obviously been a lot of uh, concern and uh, vigilance around this fungus to make sure that we are doing active surveillance to look for these fungi. And if the patients do have them, we want to make sure that we isolate those patients and we don't want that uh, circulating as a circulating strain in our hospitals and in our nursing homes. Makes sense. I don't think the average person would know if they have just regular Canada, like a yeast infection or athlete's foot 
or is this invasive candida oris, right? I mean, right. It, to us, it would look the same other than it's just not responding to treatment. Right. Typically, we when we see candida oris infections, it's going to be in a patient in the hospital setting, or it's going to be a nursing home patient uh, who has, you know, wounds, or they have lines or catheters. We are not seeing many superficial skin or wound infections from these, like in a normal immune-competent person. Uh, so main, main vigilance actually needs to happen in the hospital settings and nursing home settings for these patients. So in the EMS world, we are in the front line of whatever the newest infection is or emerging infections. And so when, when monkeypox was a big outbreak, that was something we were worried about. And obviously COVID and flu uh, in the right season. And so um, what advice do you have for, for EMS professionals when coming across these uh, infections that we often don't know too much about or um, come in contact with without knowing about it. Um, do you have any advice for those uh, providers? Absolutely. That's so true. Our, our EMS folks are like, they are heroes in the front line and they're going into battlefield often not knowing what's out there for them. So I think it's very, very important that they have the resources and the awareness to protect themselves from these infections. Ideally, the the 911 dispatcher should have had some screening in an outbreak setting, for instance, when Ebola was a big threat or when, when Zika was happening. So ideally in those situations, depending on the regional threat and depending on what we have locally, um, there should be a screening for, for travel or if the patient's been in an area where some of these outbreaks are happening. In that situation, of course, the threat escalates to where we want to make sure that they're taking all precautions for such an outbreak. Otherwise, in their day-to-day care, um, it's screening the patient for what kind of symptoms they're having and and based on that, protecting themselves. So it should be definitely strict standard precautions. So obviously, you want to use hand hygiene and hand washing frequently and for all our patients. But standard precautions also means if the patient has obvious secretions, wounds, you don't want to handle them without gloves. And you know, if need be, if they have a history of MRSA, uh, we can ask them if you, if they've been around in nursing homes or if they've had if they know that they have a drug resistant bacteria in that situation they can definitely glove and gown but having said that a lot of times that history is not possible the patient is not in a situation to give so they have to go with the best information available for them but in terms of protecting themselves against certain specific transmission-based precautions, we call them. Uh, So they usually come under three categories. They are either contact precautions, droplet, or airborne. Where do we suggest contact precautions, especially if the patient is having gastrointestinal symptoms? So if they're having diarrhea, vomiting, or if they have big open wounds uh, that are draining and soiling around. So in that situation, I would definitely recommend contact precautions, which would mean gown and gloves in that situation for sure. And um, droplet precautions, uh, I would definitely recommend in patients who have significant respiratory symptoms, high fever, if if it is a concern for a respiratory viral pathogen, uh, a surgical mask. Actually, putting a surgical mask on the patient is even more effective. So that would be a simple, simpler uh, thing to do. Airborne precautions are a little tricky, but there are certain situations in where airborne precautions do have a role. And certainly one would be is if the patient has history of tuberculosis or if they have are coming from a place where there's tuberculosis. So if you're called in for a patient who's been losing weight and is coughing for three, four months and is coming from a TB endemic country, the risk of TB is high and N95 mask in that situation makes sense. Um, The other two places where N95 masks really help are 
chicken pox and measles. So if you have a patient who has cough or a respiratory illness and also has a rash along with that, it's not common to have have them go together. So if you see a rash and a respiratory illness along with it, and then you're worried about measles or chicken pox, it's always safe to wear an N95. We can always, you know, later on, if things seem different, we can always change back. But in, in, the, in the front lines, I think it makes sense to do that. And you were mentioning that we're seeing more of these kind of older diseases we weren't seeing before because of vaccine hesitancy and for both measles and chickenpox, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And anytime I see a rash, I always tell folks to be careful. You know, if you don't know what the rash is from, and it is possible that it's an infectious rash, it's always safer to be on the safer side. It's always better to have those contact precautions. And if need be, uh, airborne precautions if the patient has respiratory symptoms too. It might be a good segue to talk about American Ambulance's personal protective equipment kind of policy right now with the um, lifting of the health emergency. You know, it's basically wear gloves on all calls. But when your patient has a fever, cough, or rash, we're saying source control, which I think would be great to put a mask on the patient. We're going to wear a mask. The provider's going to wear a mask and then still wear gloves. But I like your caveat about when to wear the N95 or the KN95. You know, we don't always think about chickenpox or measles because we think, oh, we've all been vaccinated. But it's true that it is rising again. Uh, Something that I always think of that we consider droplet precautions for something like meningitis. Are there other infections that may not be obvious from the beginning, but may also make you think twice about increased PPE? I'm glad you brought up the meningitis question, because that is also uh, one of the important places where our EMS folks are really uh, exposed to, um, especially one kind of meningitis, which is the Neisseria meningitis, uh, which can cause droplet particles to spread. And these patients are usually very, very sick. So it's possible that our EMS folks may have to protect their airway or intubate them. And the risk of exposure is high at that point. Uh, One situation where occasionally they may end up needing even post-exposure prophylaxis or antibiotics is if you have a patient with possible meningitis, which could be Neisseria. Other kinds of meningitis, we don't have the risk. It's only Neisseria meningitis where they can uh, be exposed and they may need more protection at that point. Other situations where droplet precautions may help, again, with some of the emerging, re-emerging pathogens, and one of the re-emerging pathogens is pertussis. So very, very easily preventable with vaccine, uh, but we are seeing some cases when there's loss of immunity over time and if they've not had their boosters. So if you have a patient who's had a persistent hacking cough that's not going away, that would be someone where you're thinking about pertussis and can spread through droplet. I would recommend a droplet precaution in those patients as well. So we've all gone through a lot with COVID these last three years, a lot of scare. It's been very frustrating. And so our instinct is to just forget about COVID and go back to as we were before and think that there's no other threat out there, but the reality is far from it. And pandemics are going to continue to happen. Um, We're going to have folks bring in stuff from outside our borders. We're going to have re-emerging pathogens here. We're going to have superbugs. So I think we can potentially use what we learned from COVID these last three years and use it to our advantage going forward and use the lessons learned to protect us from these infections as much as possible. I would go back to the basics. Uh, Frequent hand washing definitely has a role in preventing infections. And if you're sick, stay home. That's what our, our grandparents used to do. And, uh, and if you have a vaccine that's available to protect you, take it. I think that's all great advice. And actually, It sounds so simple, like if you're sick, stay at home. But 
I think that's one of the things we all took away because I know at least in the in the ER, we would all show up to work with whatever runny nose, cough, fever that we had. It was the motto is like, well, if you can get out of bed, you can come to your shift. And now it's become a lot more, well, it's accepted and really the norm now that, no, if you're sick, just stay at home and it's better for you to take care of yourself, but it's also better to not spread these infections to everybody. Now, one other uh, question I just thought of is that, you know, as an EMS or frontline professional, um, how to even get information about what the latest outbreak is or what's the latest infectious disease that we all need to have on our radar. Absolutely. Um, CDC has a great list of updates that they periodically put in their webpage, and they provide information on not just regional, national, but global outbreaks that are happening around the world uh, with a nice map. I think I got a lot of my geography from CDC rather than from my high school. So you actually learn a lot from CDC through what's going on around the world. I think it's a good idea to keep up to date with them often. ID Society's webpage also has a lot of information about outbreaks happening within the country and outside the country. I really find uh, Fresno's public health webpage, as well as the California public health webpage, very useful in providing information that are happening locally and regionally in the area as well. And you mentioned you listen to some infectious disease podcasts. What are some good ID podcasts out there? Uh, actually, I would refer you to the ID Society webpage. They have a full list of podcasts oh. going on in the ID world and really good information about, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's MPOX or any other new outbreaks that are happening out there. Yeah, it's such a rapidly changing landscape. So that's really useful. We've talked a lot about COVID and some emerging pathogens. Is there anything else that you're excited about or focused on yourself? Anything else you'd like to share? Uh, thank you. Yeah, my uh, I'm very interested in valley fever, which is uh, which is one of the uh, local fungal infections that really affect our rural farmers and our agricultural workers, our construction workers. Uh, so a lot of my research effort, efforts are into valley fever, especially now with the recent increase in rains, there is a concern uh, maybe that could increase the risk of valley fever disease more in the down, down the road. So uh, there are definitely things to look for about valley fever too. Yeah, we definitely see a lot of that here. So that's great that that's a big topic of your research. I mean, before COVID, if we saw any anyone with anything weird pulmonary, we would say, okay, that's, that's what they have. But um, also so many other manifestations in the body. And do we have any cases here that are um, the valley fever is resistant to any of the standard medications? Unfortunately, our problems with valley fever management actually have to do with the just the access to care and adherence to existing medications and toxicities from existing medications. Um, we don't see a whole lot of resistance in the valley fever world, thankfully, so far. Uh, but what is a problem in the valley fever world is, um, especially for some of those with infections in their brain, where they need to be on lifelong medications, um, we are seeing that a lot of them don't have easy access to care or easy access to medications. Yeah, you're right. It's They're taking those medications forever at that point. Yes. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you so much. Of course. I feel like there's so much out there about prebiotics and probiotics and just for like everyday use, for use while on antibiotics. And I'm, I just feel like, what is the real data behind all this? Are all of us supposed to be on probiotics? 
the data is limited on whether there's actually a potential benefit to using probiotics, um, especially when we look at C. diff, which is an infection that you can get by using antibiotics and losing your good bacteria. You know, there were some smaller studies on seeing the efficacy of using probiotics in preventing C. diff infections. So there's not a lot of data in support of that. There are certain situations where I would actually discourage using probiotics, and these are patients who are immunocompromised, who are on chemotherapy, uh, or their immune system may not be able to handle the supposedly weak probiotic bacteria in there. Well, that's good to know. So you don't think that, you know, if I prescribe somebody a specific antibiotic, it's like, oh, that's a bad one. They need a probiotic with it. It sounds like there's no data behind that. Yeah, not at this time. Okay. Thank you. We used to hear a lot about Pseudomonas is like a big nosocomial infection. And recently there were the eye drops that were contaminated with Pseudomonas. Can you speak a little bit about that? Those are the kind of outbreaks that scare us. Um, we've had some outbreaks related to surgical site from folks who went outside of the country for their surgeries as well. And so this Pseudomonas infection happened in January. It was a multi-state outbreak. It was related to uh, over-the-counter eye drops from a particular brand, which was contaminated. And uh, folks were getting eye infections, keratitis, uh, but some also got like systemic infections, meaning even though they used it as eye drops, they actually had a blood infection or they went septic from the bacteria. And the scary thing about this particular pseudomonas strain, it's called a VIM strain, um, resistant to pretty much all available antibiotics to use against it. So those, those are the kind of bacteria that scare us. And that's where I feel antimicrobial stewardship plays a big role. Um, so antimicrobial stewardship um, is, a, is a program run by us. We do have one in UCSF Fresno as well, where we actually monitor the prescribing practices of providers in the hospital, and we give them advice on how they could change the antibiotics to use not a very broad-spectrum antibiotic in every situation. So CMC is actually one of the IDSA Center for Excellence for Antimicrobial Stewardship, and it is a very effective method in reducing these superbugs, uh, especially since we don't have new drugs that are coming up in the pipeline that quickly. Uh, I think it's very important that providers, patients, everybody are focusing on their antibiotic utilization practices and be very vigilant about antibiotics are not safe. So the more we just casually use them, the more we give rise to superbugs. That's a really good take-home point that just because you have a little cold or something or you have a sore throat does not mean you need antibiotics and we need to really be vigilant about antibiotic use. Absolutely. Well, I really want to thank you, Geetha, for coming on the podcast and sharing all this wonderful knowledge with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. 
And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.